Welcome back to our New Testament survey. We're working our way through the New Testament, looking at each book in turn. And this evening we will begin with 2 Timothy. Now as we've worked our way through the New Testament, of course we dealt with the four Gospels and then we immediately were uh, thrown into the Apostle Paul's letters to the churches, uh, Romans through Thessalonians. And so we've covered those. And then last week we began to look at uh, what are typically known as the pastoral epistles. Uh, these are letters that Paul wrote to Timothy and to Titus, uh, his uh, assistance that he had sent to the churches uh, to strengthen the churches, to set them in order, to appoint elders, uh, that sort of thing. And so they're called the pastoral epistles because they largely deal with pastoral issues, uh, with the organization of the church, the appointment of officers, uh, the management of the body, uh, care for the congregation, uh, that sort of thing. So last week we looked at 1 Timothy and Titus, uh, we skipped over 2 Timothy, and we did that because 1 Timothy and Titus are very closely related, dealing with the appointment of officers in the church, the qualifications for officers. So this, this evening, we're going to go back and look at 2 Timothy and then move from there on to Philemon. And Philemon's a little different, and we'll address that uh, when we get to it. Uh, now, 2 Timothy... Uh, we spent a considerable amount of time uh, in this book the early part of last year on Sunday mornings uh, as we preached through it. And so uh, this should be in large part reminder for uh, many, if not most of us. Uh, but this is the last letter as far as we know and can discern from the data that we have. This is the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. Uh, at least that is preserved for us in Scripture. So this was written near the end of his life. Uh, he was in prison in Rome, uh, awaiting trial and ec ultimately execution. Uh, and so he wrote this letter probably sometime in late 65 or early 66 A.D. Obviously, it's written to Timothy. Now, as we looked at the pastoral letters, Timothy and Titus, uh, Paul's uh, closest associates, uh, both of whom he calls sons uh, in his letter to them. Uh, and so these are men that he had trained along the way, not, not sitting in a school somewhere, but in the trenches with him, doing ministry in the churches, traveling around from city to city, uh, ministering to people, proclaiming the gospel, establishing churches. So they weren't just men that he had trained in a classroom, but he had shared his life with them. So they were very close uh, companions of his. And so he views them uh, as sons in the faith and as close uh, brothers in the faith. And so he's sent them uh, to these two places. Timothy's in Ephesus uh, and Titus is on the island of Crete. Uh, and so Timothy has remained in Ephesus for some time. Uh, the first letter to Timothy was uh, likely written sometime between 63 and 65 AD. So uh, depending on when in that window this was written, 2 Timothy is written anywhere from you know, one to three years later. And Paul is near the end of his life. Uh, he's already written a letter to Timothy concerning the church, the organization of the church and officers, care for the congregation. Uh, but the church in Ephesus continues to experience some significant problems with false teaching uh, and that sort of thing. And so Paul sends this letter to Timothy uh, to encourage him to steadfastness in the faith uh, and to a course of discipleship uh, that would establish strong leaders who would remain after Timothy leaves. Of course, at the end of the letter, Paul requests that Timothy come to him in his imprisonment. So he's hoping that Timothy can uh, get these things in order in the church and then leave the church in good hands and come to Rome where Paul is imprisoned. So uh, this is Paul's final, final letter. It's a call to discipleship and steadfastness in the gospel. Uh, there are four chapters in the book, and so if we were to merely kind of summarize each one of them in turn as a, a rough outline, uh, I would say chapter one is encouragement in the gospel. Chapter two is entrusted with the gospel. Uh, chapter three would then be living in the last days. And chapter four would be Paul's final charge uh, to Timothy and to the church. So as we look at chapter one, uh, we can see Paul's greeting uh, to Timothy here, and there's something that's just slightly different in this greeting than what we've seen in most of his other letters. He says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to 
the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. So that last part is new. Uh, We've not seen Paul say that uh, in any of his other letters. And it, it likely indicates that Paul is thinking about the end of his life. He's thinking about his approaching death, which we get other indications of that in the letter. And so he's thinking about the promise of eternal life uh, in Christ. And so uh, he's saying that he is an apostle of Jesus, appointed by the will of God uh, for uh, not only apostleship to the churches, but for eternal life as well. Then he addresses it to Timothy, a beloved son, uh, and gives his typical greeting there of grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, interestingly, uh, I don't even have this in my notes, but uh, I was listening to some stuff earlier in the week while I was driving, uh, and Jonathan Edwards commenting on Paul's greetings at the beginning of his letters was commenting on the fact that, as you'll notice, He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. And there's no mention of the Holy Spirit there. And so Jonathan Edwards was addressing why not. And his uh, take on this was that when we look at um, what we say together as a church, when we confess our faith, that that God the Father uh, is in the Nicene Creed, that God the Father is begotten of none, that the Son is begotten of the Father, and that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Jonathan Edwards' take on that was that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of grace, the Spirit of mercy, and the Spirit of peace who proceeds from the Father and the Son to the churches. So I thought that was an interesting view of Paul's greetings there, that actually his greetings are Trinitarian, if we read them in that way. So Paul begins then to with his typical thanksgiving in verse 3 through 7, thanking uh, the Lord for Timothy. Uh, He talks about his love for Timothy as a son in the faith. Uh, He makes mention of his confidence in the genuineness of Timothy's faith. Uh, And then in verses 8 through 12, uh, he begins to encourage Timothy to share in suffering for the sake of the gospel and to do so without shame. Uh, and so he tells Timothy in verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And so that's a theme that we see recurring throughout the letter. He's encouraging Timothy uh, to be steadfast in the, sake, in the face of suffering uh, for the sake of the gospel. Now, uh, he says that uh, he is to do this, and he makes the point that the gospel that Paul has taught to Timothy is the word of God. It is not uh, something that Paul made up. It's not a man-made thing, but it is the word of God. He said in verse 1 that he was an apostle by the will of God. Uh, he says in verse 9 that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So uh, salvation, which is the message of the gospel, has been given to us. He then says in verse 10, uh, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So the gospel is given to us, it has been revealed to us, it has been brought to us by Christ. It's not Christianity is not a man-made religion. It's not something that we've come up with in an attempt to reach God, but rather this was God's design and God's plan for how he would condescend to reach down and lift us up to himself. And so uh, this is not uh, something that Paul made up It is from God, and so he encourages Timothy to remain steadfast in the gospel. Uh, The gospel is about what Christ has done in and for us, not about what we do to make ourselves right with God. Uh, And so it is to be guarded. Uh, It's important that we guard it and preserve it so that it is not perverted or lost. And a large part of this letter uh, is about that very thing. And we've seen that throughout most of Paul's letters as he encourages the churches and then Timothy and Titus specifically to guard the gospel uh, and to remain faithful to it. In verses 13 through 18, then uh, he encourages Timothy to, in verse 13, hold fast the pattern of sound words 
which you have heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. And so that pattern of sound words is kind of a summary of uh, the system of doctrine that Paul has taught to Timothy. And so Timothy is to hold fast to it, to cling to it, uh, to guard what has been committed to him. Uh, And so he is to continue in the gospel Uh, as he continues to lead the church there in Ephesus. Uh, And then as it moves into chapter 2, Paul encourages Timothy uh, to take this gospel that he has been entrusted with and to pass it on to other men. Uh, He says in chapter 2, verse 2, the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So, Given what we saw in 1 Timothy and Titus concerning the role of elders uh, and the one uh, skill that is required of them that they be able to teach, uh, Paul is obviously talking about Timothy training the next generation of elders, men who would be committed, uh, trusted with the gospel, and be able to teach others what they have been taught by Timothy. Uh, And so Paul is telling him that he should pass on what he has learned to the next generation. In verses 3 through 7, he then gives us um, these various metaphors uh, about warfare, about athletics, and about farming uh, to teach us the lesson that discipleship requires endurance, that discipleship that Timothy's uh, handing on the gospel to the next generation, training the next generation of elders, uh, will require endurance, both of Timothy and of the men that he is training. Uh, it's something that they must be committed to as soldiers, uh, that they must apply themselves to as athletes, and that they must work hard like a farmer. Uh, those various metaphors that we explored uh, when we preached through this last year. But uh, the summary there is that discipleship is hard work and it requires endurance. Then in verses 8 through 13, uh, he talks about uh, Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead according to my gospel. So there's the, the core central tenet of the gospel is Jesus Christ who came, who died for us, and who was raised from the dead. Uh, and so he talks about Christ's resurrection, eternal glory, and Paul's hope for it, uh, his hope for uh, the glory of Christ. Uh, and he ends the chapter uh, there with, or ends this section, rather, with uh, this faithful saying uh, in verses 11 through 13. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he, will also, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Uh, And so this is a a summary, a pattern of sound words, one of those things that Paul has told Timothy to cling to, to hold fast to. Uh, It's a summary of the gospel that Christ has died, that in our being united to him by faith, we have died with him. And that's what baptism pictures for us, our death and then our resurrection, that we live with him and therefore we are to endure and that we might also reign with him. And so there's Paul's hope uh, of this promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus that he referenced back in chapter 1, verse 1. In verses 14 through 26, uh, heading to the end of the chapter, then he begins to uh, instruct Timothy uh, in how he is to deal with uh, false teaching in the church, uh, that he is to uh, remind these men that he is training uh, of these things, Uh, that he has been taught and learned from the Apostle Paul that he has passed on to them. And then he instructs him that he is uh, not to get caught up into disputes and and worthless uh, striving uh, with the false teachers, but rather, uh, verse 15, he is to be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Of course, a very well-known verse here out of 2 Timothy, uh, but he's encouraging Timothy and the men that he is training to diligence in their study and preparation that they might refute false teaching. They are to shun it, they are to shut it out, to not let it have a voice in the church, and yet he also makes the point that they are uh, to correct false teaching with firmness. Uh, We see that in verse 16, that they are to shun it, but they're also to do so with gentleness, which we see down in verse 24. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, 
if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. And so uh, as they confront false teaching, they're to be firm with it. They're to shut it out, to not allow the false teachers to have a voice in the church, but they're to do so with gentleness and with humility uh, and the hope that God may perhaps grant repentance uh, to those that they are correcting and bring them to a knowledge of the truth and to true salvation. Chapter 3, then Paul uh, begins to talk about uh, the last days. He says in verse 1, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Uh, And of course, we've seen this before in Paul's letters. We said last week that uh, from the ascension of Christ, uh, the apostles considered themselves to be in the last days. And so Paul's not telling Timothy of something that will happen far off in the future, but something that he is to deal with right then uh, in that moment that uh, these false teachers will come, that these men, uh, that, that people will be lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God. And so they'll uh, give in to this massive list of sins that he uh, puts in here for us. Uh, and he tells us how the false teachers will behave, um, that they are deceitful, they creep into households. In other words, they're sneaky, um, that they're leading people astray. And so... Uh, Paul's message to Timothy here is, is that you are, uh, you're going to face these things. You're going to deal with them. The false teachers will try to pass themselves off as godly, uh, but they are to be avoided. He says in verse 5 that they having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people turn away. So uh, these people that Paul is describing have a form of godliness, have an appearance of godliness, uh, but He is to discern the difference and to realize what their motivation is. They're lovers of selves rather than lovers of God and and lovers of others. And so he is to turn away from them. Uh, They are to be avoided. He is to um, shun them, to put them out of the church. Uh, You know, it's interesting, some of these verses that we see in here where Paul talks about them, uh, you know, that one is, is popular. We're familiar with verse 5 there, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Uh, we're familiar with verse 15 back in chapter 2, but some of these verses, like verse 16 of chapter 2, but shun profane and idle babblings, uh, or some of these descriptions that he gives of the false teachers in chapter 3, that these are not verses that you would typically see printed on a coffee cup or sewn on a throw pillow. Uh, Paul's saying some pretty hard things about these false teachers uh, and telling Timothy uh, that he has to deal with them. uh, And sometimes he's going to have to be very firm when he does so. uh, But at the same time, he's to be gentle. He says in verse 12 then um, that, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so as Timothy is facing opposition in the church in Ephesus, and we know uh, from the book of Acts uh, that there was a mob that was stirred up against the church there on one occasion. There is, so there's false teachers within the church. There's opposition outside the church in the culture. Uh, and so Timothy is facing uh, enemies on every front, and he's facing persecution. And, and Paul encourages him that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so this is not something uh, that Timothy is experiencing that no one else has experienced. And again, uh, this is not a verse that you'll see typically hung up on somebody's wall uh, in their foyer, Uh, but it's one that we would do well to take heed to. He then says in verse 14 that Timothy needs to persevere in the faith. He says, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Uh, So Timothy is to continue. He's to hold fast to that pattern of sound doctrine. He is to pass it on to others. He is to endure, uh, to continue in the faith in spite of opposition inside the church, persecution from outside the church. And then, of course, we have... Uh, verse 16 and 17, which are as well well-known verses from Second Timothy, uh, but Scripture is the standard for godliness. It is the source of authority in the church, and it is the fuel uh, of our sanctification. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God 
It's not man's word. It is God's word. Therefore, it is authoritative and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Uh, So this is what Timothy is to use as he corrects the false teachers, as he instructs and trains the next generation of elders. Uh, He is to rely on the word of God. Uh, And Paul says the purpose in verse 17 is that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so the scriptures are sufficient uh, for the work of the pastors in the church. The scripture uh, is not one of the tools in our toolbox. It is the toolbox. The scriptures are uh, what we use for the Christian life, both for our standard of what is right and wrong, what godly living looks like. Uh, It is the tool that we use for our sanctification, for training in the church, for correcting false teachers. Uh, So scripture is foundational for us. He then... um, He then goes on in chapter 4 to address uh, his final charge to Timothy uh, and ultimately to all pastors and preachers of the word. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. So again, uh, scripture is what we teach. We don't Uh, teach our opinions. We don't teach uh, pop psychology or what's popular in the culture. We preach the Word of God. Uh, We teach the Word of God. We appeal to it as the authority, not ourselves, not somebody's expertise, but uh, that it is the very Word of God. And so Timothy is to be ready with it in season and out of season, when he feels like it, when he doesn't feel like it, Uh, when things are going well, when they're not going well. He's to turn to the scriptures, to rely on them and use them uh, to correct, to teach and instruct people. But Paul warns him that the time will come uh, when people will no longer want to hear it, right? Um, He says in verse 3, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, which is the very thing that he has told Timothy to hold fast to. And he says people won't endure it. Uh, But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So does that mean we throw in the towel and give up? Well, no, he's encouraging Timothy throughout this letter to endure, to continue, to stay the course. So uh, just because a large number of people in general uh, will turn their ears away from the truth doesn't mean that we should stop teaching it. Rather, uh, we continue the course for the scripture is what God has given us uh, to proclaim the gospel to the world. The scripture is the word of God, is what converts men's souls, uh, the spirit working through the word. So we are to stay the course, we're to continue uh, to, to do so. Even if people want junk food, uh, you're still supposed to serve them a healthy meal, a full course meal of the scriptures. And so Uh, Paul then expresses his confidence in verses 6 through 8, his confidence that that God is at work. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Uh, So Paul has confidence uh, in the gospel in his own life and in the lives of Timothy and other men, other churches that Paul has come in contact with on his missionary journeys. And so again, he's looking at the end of his life, that hope that he has for eternity, and he has a confidence in it because of the word of God. And this really should be uh, the goal that we would all live by that we could have this sort of confidence uh, in, the, in the grace of God and in the gospel's work in our own hearts. In verses 9 through 15, Paul then uh, expresses his uh, weakness in this moment and that he is all alone. Uh, he desires the company of a friend. Uh, he wants Timothy to come to him. And, you know, there's an important lesson we can learn here, uh, that the apostle Paul felt comfortable uh, expressing his loneliness, uh, this moment of weakness that he, he needed 
uh, Timothy to be there with him to help support him uh, through what he was going through. Now, it's interesting uh, as we look at this because this is the last of Paul's letters, and in a moment we're going to turn and look at Philippians or at Philemon, and um, a couple of these men are going to be mentioned again, uh, but earlier in the course of history than they are here. And so we see in verse 10, he says, for Demas has forsaken me. Well, in Philemon, Demas is still with Paul uh, when he writes that letter. But here, Demas has forsaken him, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. Uh, we also, now we don't know exactly what that means. We know there's a church in Thessalonica. Uh, so has Demas abandoned the faith or has he abandoned Paul in this moment of need? Uh, we're not entirely sure. Uh, but various people have gone other places. Titus for Dalmatia. Now if we think about uh, Titus, of course we looked at the letter to Titus last week and he was on the Isle of Crete there. This letter is written later uh, than that and Titus has now departed from Paul and gone to Dalmatia. Dalmatia was a Roman province, uh, obviously was not the island of Crete. It was what we would in modern days uh, covers the territory that consists currently of Albania, uh, Croatia, Bosnia, Kosovo, and Serbia. So it's a large Roman province. We don't know why Titus is there, probably uh, on mission, working in various churches, but he's not there with, with Paul. And so Paul is uh, feeling alone. Uh, only Luke is with me, he says. And then he asks uh, Timothy to get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. And of course, we know that Paul had a history with Mark. Mark had accompanied uh, Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey and then abandoned them in the middle of it. And then on the second missionary journey, he wanted to go with them, and Paul said no. Uh, he didn't want to take Mark, who had abandoned them that first time. But here, later in his life, uh, he is now reconciled with Mark and finds Mark useful uh, for ministry. And so he wants Mark there with him uh, in his moment of need. Uh, Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus, uh, and then he gives Timothy some instructions about a cloak and, and some books and parchments that he wants brought to him. Um, in verses 16 through 18, uh, Paul then uh, expresses uh, this. He says, At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. So this is probably a legal defense uh, in the courts there in Rome or before the emperor. In verse 17, he says, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul's looking at the end of his life. He's not expecting necessarily that the Lord will deliver him from this imprisonment or impending death, but that the Lord will ultimately deliver his soul uh, and preserve him for the heavenly kingdom. Uh, when he mentions the Lord preserving him from the lion, he is likely uh, thinking of this uh, verse from Psalm 22, which is, interestingly, the same psalm, of course, that Jesus references on the cross. Uh, Jesus quotes the very beginning of it, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Calling our attention to this psalm, which pictures for us the crucifixion. Uh, but Paul is likely thinking about verses 19 through 21, which say, But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. Uh, so Paul says that he has been uh, delivered from the lion. Uh, he was preserved uh, through many uh, beatings, shipwrecks, stonings, all these various things during the course of his ministry. Uh, and now he is convinced that the, that the Lord did that uh, in order that all the God Gentiles might hear. Uh, and now he's convinced that the Lord will preserve his soul and deliver him into the heavenly kingdom. He's ready uh, to go meet the Lord. He feels like his work on earth is done. And then in verses 19 through 22, uh, he gives some greetings from various people, uh, including... Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, who we've seen elsewhere, uh, and some other uh, greetings there to Timothy and, and the church in Ephesus. And so if 
You know, the Ephesian church continued to struggle even after Paul wrote this letter. We can see uh, mention of it in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, and the letter to the churches there, that uh, the church was still struggling with false teaching, uh, with clinging to the gospel and preserving it. But, you know, Paul's measure of success here in 2 Timothy uh, has to do with the faithfulness of the church to Christ, the faithfulness of himself or of Timothy and the various elders to the gospel, to the calling to which they have been called, uh, and not necessarily uh, to their success in the eyes of the world. Discipleship is hard work for everyone involved, and it may not always be uh, successful from a worldly perspective. Uh, The church in Ephesus ultimately may collapse there after uh, the letter in Revelation is written to it, but uh, it's not our calling to worry about success from a worldly perspective. Success from Paul's perspective is faithfulness to the gospel, faithfulness to the truth of the message, and in proclaiming it and clinging tightly, holding fast to it yourself and fulfilling your calling and leaving the rest in the Lord's hands. So that is primarily what Paul is concerned with here in 2 Timothy, is encouraging Timothy to that sort of faithfulness to the gospel. So now let's turn over uh, to the book of Philemon. Now, it's interesting, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus are really uh, what we consider the pastoral epistles. Philemon is a little different. Now, Philemon is not, um, it's not grouped with Paul's other letters to the churches because it is particularly addressed to an individual uh, by the name of Philemon. Uh, and so that may be why it's grouped here with pastorals because they're addressed to individuals, Timothy and Titus. Uh, but we'll see that Philemon is not the only person. He is the primary recipient of the letter, but not the only person uh, who Paul greets and expects to read this letter. Uh, So it is actually sent to a church, Uh, and this would be the church in Colossae uh, from all accounts. That is where uh, Philemon was located. Now, if we think about Paul's relationship to the church in Colossae, he never visited it, but it's clear from this letter that he knows Philemon. Uh, Perhaps Philemon had encountered Paul when he was in Ephesus, a nearby city, uh, teaching. Uh, We're not sure. Uh, Many of the same people are greeted uh, when in his letter to Colossians, uh, when he greets people there. He greets many of the same people at the end of this letter uh, and at the beginning addresses it to them. Um, Onesimus is mentioned in Colossians as one who carried the letter to the church in Colossae, and here he is sent to Philemon. So it's quite likely that Philemon was located in Colossae, and probably these letters were written around the same time and perhaps sent at the same time by the hand of Onesimus. So the occasion for writing this letter is that Onesimus is a slave. Uh, He is a slave who has fled from his master, Philemon. Uh, He meets Paul in Rome. We're not particularly sure why. Uh, We don't know if he sought Paul out Uh, or if he just ended up in prison and somehow encountered Paul in that way, we don't know. But we know that he meets Paul in Rome, and by all accounts, he gets saved uh, there in his conversations with Paul. And so Paul is now sending him back to his master, to the one that he fled from, to be reconciled uh, to Philemon. Now, Paul already knew Philemon. Perhaps he already knew Onesimus. We don't know. So we don't know exactly what Paul's previous relationship with Onesimus was, but we do know that Onesimus has met Paul in Rome, uh, has become a brother in Christ, and is now being sent back uh, to reconcile to uh, his master Philemon. And so the purpose of this letter then is to reconcile the relationship between these two men, Philemon and Onesimus. But we'll see that uh, Philemon's location here next to the pastoral epistles uh, is not coincidental. It has a great deal of relationship to them. Uh, If we look at uh, outlining this letter, it's a short letter. Uh, It's only 25 verses. 
Uh, so we have the letter opening in verses 1 through 3, the typical thanksgiving in verses 4 through 7, uh, then the bulk of the letter, Paul's request to Philemon in verses 8 through 22, and then the letter closing in verses 23 through 25. Uh, and the main theme of this letter is the reconciliation of this relationship uh, between Philemon and Onesimus. And for that to happen, forgiveness must take place. And so that is really uh, the primary theological theme of this letter is forgiveness uh, in the life of the church, I would argue. So as we look at this uh, letter opening, it's addressed to Philemon. He says in verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. So Timothy is with him apparently when he wrote this, same time he wrote Colossians. To Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer. Uh, so he calls Philemon a beloved friend. Uh, so it appears that he knows him, and, and we see that also from verse 19. Uh, but then he says in verse 2, to the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. So this isn't just a private letter to Philemon. It's addressed to the church, uh, which we'll see is an important component of what Paul is trying to accomplish here uh, in addressing this letter to the church and not just to Philemon, but we also must note that the church meets in Philemon's home. So Philemon has a large enough home for the church to meet in his home. Uh, so we don't know exactly what that means. We're not told, but it appears likely that Philemon is in some sort of prominent role within the church. He hosts the church in his home. Um, we don't know these other men that are mentioned uh, there in verse 2 could possibly be the elders in the church, we don't know for certain, but they're mentioned by name, and it appears uh, as if, and we'll see this, that there's a certain element of Paul kind of holding Philemon accountable by addressing the letter to the church, by mentioning these other men in particular, and by something we'll see later in the letter. Uh, he's going to require Philemon to exercise some forgiveness and to be reconciled to Onesimus, and he appears to be holding him accountable by addressing these other men. So he begins uh, with his typical greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and then he goes into his thanksgiving in verses 4 through 7. So he is thankful for Philemon. Uh, he calls Philemon a brother, uh, a beloved friend there in verse 1. Uh, but then in verse 7, he calls him a brother. Uh, but he says, I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And so he makes the point of thanking God for Philemon's love for Christ and for his love for the saints. Uh, and then in verse 7, he also talked about the great joy and consolation that he has in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. So he's reminding Philemon that whatever Philemon has done to serve and to love the saints has refreshed the hearts of the saints. Well, in verse 6, uh, he prays for Philemon that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. Now, this is Paul's prayer for uh, Philemon, what he's asking God to do, that the sharing of Philemon's faith would become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. When he says sharing of your faith, he does not mean evangelizing. We think about sharing our faith, and we're thinking of sharing it with someone who has never heard it before, evangelizing the lost. But if we look at the context, the context on both sides of verse 6 is about Philemon's love for the saints, uh, his love for other believers. And so what Paul is telling him here, he's talking about uh, sharing his faith. That's the word ko koinonia fellowship, the fellowship of your faith with other believers. Uh, he wants that to become effective uh, so that Philemon knows the good things which have been worked in him by Christ, which namely, I, I would argue, would be uh, the forgiveness that he has experienced because of the gospel. And we'll see that as we work our way through the letter now. Uh, Paul is comforted knowing that Philemon has uh, been the sort of man who would love the saints and refresh them. Then in verse 8, uh, he begins his request of Philemon, and he says, Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, I'm not going to do that. 
He says, I could command you to do it. He says, it's the right thing to do, but I'm not going to command you to do it. Rather, he says, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. So he's referenced Philemon's love. Now he's, he's referencing that love saying, for the sake of love, I'm asking you, I'm appealing to you to do this thing. So what he wants him to do uh, then is to, uh, he says, I appeal to you, in verse 10, for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. So just like he had referred to Timothy and Titus as sons, now he refers to Onesimus as a son. He's a son in the faith. Uh, I've begotten him while in my chains. Uh, seems to indicate that uh, Onesimus had come to faith uh, under Paul's teaching and ministry while he was in prison there in Rome. And so Paul admits that previously, in verse 11, he says, Onesimus was not a good slave. He was not profitable uh, to Philemon, his master. Uh, But now, he says, he is profitable both to you and to me. And so we begin to see uh, a little bit of what Paul's request is. It goes beyond merely forgiving Onesimus. Uh, He makes mention of the fact that Onesimus is profitable uh, to him. Uh, He finds uh, value in having Onesimus with him. In verse 12, he says that he is sending Onesimus back uh, to Philemon, and Philemon is to receive him, uh, and he says, that is mine own heart. So he's called him a son. He's saying, uh, he's valuable to me. He's precious to me. You receive him back. It's the right thing to do that I send him back to you. Uh, He says in verse 13, whom I wished to keep with me. I found him profitable to me. I wanted to keep him with me, but I'm sending him back to you because it's the right thing to do. And now I expect you to do the right thing uh, in receiving him back. He says in verse 14, he wasn't going to keep Onesimus without uh, Philemon's consent, uh, but he wanted, uh, he did not want uh, Philemon to consent to Onesimus staying there because Uh, Paul had demanded it of him or had kept Onesimus and said, hey, by the way, your slave's here and I'd like to keep him. Uh, He goes ahead and sends him back so that if Philemon decides, I'll release Onesimus from his servanthood, from his slavery, so that he can go serve Paul, that would be a voluntary act on his part. So then he says in verse 15 that perhaps Onesimus had run away had departed from Philemon for this very purpose, that he might come and meet Paul and get saved, and and that Philemon would be able to receive him back forever, not just as a slave, but as a brother in Christ, he says in verse 16. So he then says in verse 17, if you then count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. So receive this runaway slave back as if you were receiving the apostle himself. In verse 18, he says that if Onesimus owes anything to Philemon, which he does, um, at least he owes him uh, because in running away, uh, he has stolen from Philemon what labor should have been Philemon's. Uh, But by running away, not being present to do the work that he was supposed to do as a slave, he's at least stolen that from him. If not, Uh, something else. Various commentators disagree. Uh, Some think that perhaps Onesimus stole uh, some goods or some money or perhaps that he had mismanaged money or or mismanaged the household. We don't know exactly, but it appears that Onesimus owes something. He's wronged Philemon in some way. And so Paul says in verse 18, just to put that on my account, he says in verse 19 that he will repay it personally that he'll take care of that debt, whatever it is. Uh, and, and he kind of makes mention there. He says, uh, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. Uh, and so we don't know exactly what that means. It seems likely that he's kind of pointing out, hey, Philemon, you know, I'll pay whatever he owes you, you know, not to mention that you kind of owe me your life because I led you to the Lord. You have eternal life. You have salvation now because of my ministry. So, I'll pay whatever he owes you, but think about what he owes you and consider who's paying it and consider what you might owe me in return. Uh, In verse 20, he encourages uh, Philemon to refresh uh, my heart in the Lord. Uh, He wants to have joy in 
what he knows that Philemon will do. He says in verse 21, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Uh, so he's telling him to receive Onesimus back as if he were himself. He's saying, I'm confident you're going to do even more than that. And the implication seems to be you're going to release him from the slavery so that he can come serve with me in ministry. Um, but then in verse 22, he says, Meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. So Paul's in prison when he writes this, his first Roman imprisonment. Uh, and he's telling Philemon, not only did I address this letter to the church, uh, in which I am telling you that you need to forgive this runaway slave and receive him back as if he were a brother in the Lord, as if you were receiving me back, but also be aware that I'm going to come check on the situation as soon as I'm released from prison, and I'm going to see just how you have behaved and whether or not you have uh, conducted yourself with love, as I am confident that you will. Uh, and so that is, that's Paul's request. And then uh, the letter closing in verses 23 uh, through 25, uh, he, Epaphras greets him. Epaphras, we know, was from Colossae, uh, had ministered in the church there where Paul had never been, but uh, was there in Rome with Paul at the time and had been sick at one point. Mark is with him, we see in verse 24. So is Demas and Luke and Aristarch, Aristarchus. Um, and so then he uh, closes the letter with uh, grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Now, the theme of this letter is forgiveness, right? And so I would call your attention uh, to uh, a couple of things here. Forgiveness, uh, reconciliation amongst brothers is important to the life of the church. And so if we think about 1 Timothy and Titus uh, dealing with the organization and the ordering of the church, the appointment of officers, the care for the congregation. Second Timothy dealing with discipleship, faithfulness, steadfastness in the gospel, passing it down to the next generation. And Philemon here is addressing this issue of forgiveness in the life of the church. And so there are three primary people mentioned here, Onesimus, Philemon, and Paul himself. Onesimus is a slave, we saw in verse 16. He was an unprofitable slave before he was saved. He ran away, uh, departed from his master. He had wronged him in some way and owed him something. Uh, we saw that in verse 18. But in verse 10, it appears that Onesimus had come to faith. He's born again. And because of that, he's a changed man. We see in verse 11, he's now profitable. But it's the right thing to do for Paul to send him back. He is sent back to his master to make things right. Restitution is owed. He's still a slave. Paul can't just release him. Philemon would have to do that. And so Paul sends him back. Now that he's saved, uh, he's to do the right thing. He's to live a godly life. And so he has to go back and restore this relationship with the one that he had wronged. He has to seek forgiveness. Uh, Onesimus is a man in need of forgiveness and also a man who needs to make restitution for the wrongs he has done. But notice also in Paul telling Philemon, make a room ready, I'm going to come visit as soon as I can. Paul seems to think not only does Onesimus need forgiveness, not only does he need to make restitution and make things right with the person he had wronged, he may need some pastoral protection as well. Uh, he may need a little bit of oversight here to make sure that he is treated properly uh, in this situation. But the truth of the matter is, as we consider our own lives in the church, we are all uh, in need of forgiveness. We're in need of forgiveness from God and from each other uh, for the many times that we wrong each other. Philemon, on the other hand, is a man who needs to offer forgiveness. Uh, he is told to receive Onesimus back, to accept him, to show him hospitality, as if he were showing hospitality to the Apostle Paul himself. So he is to treat him like a brother, to care for him as an honored guest. He is to transfer his debt to another and to not hold a grudge against Onesimus for that debt. That debt is transferred to the account of the Apostle Paul, and Philemon is not to hold it against Onesimus any longer. It's a genuine, real debt that needs to be paid. It's not Paul doesn't sweep it under the rug. He acknowledges restitution needs to be made. There was a wrong done, and it needs to be righted. But in this case, it, the price is going to be paid by someone else. Does this sound familiar? Sounds like the gospel, doesn't it? And so 
the forgiveness that is extended to Onesimus needs to come with no strings attached, no grudge held against him. Uh, He's to be treated as a brother and an honored guest. Philemon is to do this with love. That's why Paul reminds him uh, in that opening Thanksgiving section of the love that he has previously shown. And then in verse 9, appeals to him for love's sake to do this thing. Uh, He also instructs Philemon to consider the circumstances that have led to this as God sovereignly at work in verse 15. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose. It was God's purpose that you might receive him forever as a brother. So God was at work here. Philemon is to look beyond the personal offense uh, that he has suffered, the wrong that was done to him, the debt that is owed to him, and look at God at work. A lost soul has been saved. That's bigger than whatever financial debt is owed to Philemon. And so, you know, as we consider the life of the church, not only are we all in need of forgiveness from God and from one another, but we're all called to forgive others as well. Uh, We are to forgive others because we have been forgiven. Uh, This is what Paul meant there in verse 6 when he wanted the the sharing, the, the fellowship of Philemon's faith to effectively bring him to a knowledge of every good thing which is in you, uh, which is forgiveness that you have in Christ Jesus. Uh, The Tyndale New Testament commentary says that Paul's desire is that the fact of mutual participation or fellowship enjoyed by Philemon and his fellow Christians will result in the full blessing of being in Christ, i.e. the full unity of the body of Christ, referring specifically in this case to the reconciliation of slave and master. And then finally, I would say, consider the Apostle Paul and his role in all of this. He plays the role of the peacemaker. He knows both parties. He cares for both of them. Philemon is a beloved friend and a brother. Onesimus is a son in the faith. Uh, He holds Onesimus accountable to do what is right. Uh, He sends him to face the one that he has wronged, to humble himself and seek forgiveness. Uh, He uses his own goodwill that he has built up with the offended party for the benefit of the one seeking forgiveness. He's willing to bear the cost of the rest, righting this wrong, of the restitution uh, himself. He holds Philemon accountable uh, to forgive, saying that he will personally follow up to see that it is done. Uh, but he also respects Uh, the rights of Philemon as the the owner of the slave and as the one who actually does have some money owed to him. Uh, But he uses this as an opportunity as well to disciple uh, Philemon uh, in his sanctification. We read in Matthew 5 verse 9, Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And that is the role that Paul is playing here. Forgiveness is central to the Christian faith. It's central to the gospel. And therefore, it is central to our life together as the church. Uh, We must humble ourselves and seek forgiveness from one another. We must be willing to forgive. Uh, Paul wrote in the letter to the Colossians, it was sent by the hand of Onesimus and said that bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If any man has a quarrel against another, Even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. We must be willing to work for peace in the body, even at our own personal expense, as Paul was here. And so we see throughout the pastoral letters and on into Philemon that the church rightly ordered according to the mind of Christ, as our confession puts it, uh, steadfast in sound doctrine, committed to discipleship, and living together in peace, forgiving one another and bearing with one another, that a church of that sort is a beautiful thing because it reflects the glory of the God who has forgiven us. Let's pray.